morning, Doxa. So good to be with you here this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Luke today. So you can turn there, Luke chapter 3. Um, if I have not met you yet, my name's Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors uh, for Doxa, and then specifically I get to work with our college students in a, our college ministry, which is called the Salt Company. So we kicked off Salt Company four or five weeks ago, and we've been meeting on Thursday nights on campus. And and it is such a privilege to be a part of a church family that loves college students here in Madison. So many of you that moved here to even start this church were college students at one time in a salt company or another ministry, and you saw what Jesus did in your life while you were a student, and so now you get to give back to the next generation. So thanks for being a church that is already doing that. Um, we're so proud of you guys for the effort you've been putting in on campus. My wife's name is, is Caitlin. She's down serving with the kids. I got a little 15-month-old uh, named Jack, and we're just thankful to be a part of this uh, church family with you guys. So Luke chapter 3, to set it up, uh, this weekend my wife was at a conference in Ames, and I was alone with my son, so we had some fun together exploring. And one of the things that we did is we went downtown yesterday for the farmer's market and got to do some things. I was telling Caitlin, like, there's certain times with Jack where, like, I'll have, if, it, if it's just me and him, I'll have the instinct to, like, do something, and then I'll go, oh, no, that's too risky, or that's just not possible. But then I'm like, but Caitlin's not here, so we're going to totally try it. And so I went into the farmer's market, just, just me and him in the stroller, in the crowds, and I had heard about this, like, overlook on the Capitol, if any of you guys have been a part of that. And we journeyed our way through there and got to overlook the city. Just a really fun day, me and him. And, and I was thinking about this message for today in, in Luke chapter 3 and what we're going to be looking at. And one of the cool things about being in the Capitol building is you see all these different little inscriptions and stories of different leaders in our nation's history and currently, and you see protests happening outside, and it's just kind of this mixture of, of politics and, and government. And I can remember even being a couple years ago during the presidential election, watching the, the debates and everything, and was thinking about that. And here's, here's where I'm going, here's the point. One of the key questions that people ask about our political candidates or just different government leaders is, what's your plan, you know? this place is a mess or this area of our country is a mess. And like, if we're going to vote for you, like, what is your plan going to be to renew our country? You know, what's your policy? And that's oftentimes what they'll debate. And you can walk around in the Capitol building and Jack and I are kind of looking around and seeing these different plans that have been put in place here in Wisconsin. There are people outside of the Capitol protesting and, and playing music because they don't like certain policies. But just kind of all this talk about a plan, you know, what is your plan to actually change things here in this country? And today, in Luke chapter 3, we're going to look at a bigger question than that. It's a question like that, but, it, but not specifically dealing with, you know, American government or politics. But Luke is going to kind of answer the question for us of what is God's plan for renewing the world? What's God's plan? You know, it was written uh, a couple thousand years ago, this uh, account of Jesus' life. And so it's not dealing with exactly the issues we're going through today, but it's a, it's a bigger question. What is God's plan for renewing our world? And specifically what we're going to see is we're going to see the ministry of a guy named John the Baptist, who maybe some of you guys have heard of, maybe you haven't, but you'll hear about him today, and then the baptism of Jesus. And that's the question we're going to be looking at is what is God's plan for renewing the world? So the very first thing we'll do is we'll start off with the first couple verses of the story. So Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came. 
Okay, let's stop there for just a second. What you just saw Luke do, Rob was pointing it out last week, but this is like real historical accounts, right? Luke himself was a physician, very meticulous, detail-oriented. At the beginning of this gospel, he says, hey, other people have said some things about this Jesus of Nazareth and the, the significance of his life. I'm gonna talk to the eyewitnesses and I'm gonna put together an account for myself. And interestingly, here in chapter three, we see him doing just that. Like he's, he's literally listing the names of the people that were in power. You can go on, on Google and check. These were the people. You know, so, so like Star Wars, for example. How, do, how does Star Wars start off before the epic story is told? In a galaxy far, far away, right? And then it, it zooms off into the distance. What, what is George Lucas doing there? He's saying like, hey, this is an incredible story, but it's actually not true. I'm gonna say something kind of vague in general up front in a galaxy far, far away, long, long ago. Like this story is great, but it, it's not necessarily true. Luke doesn't start off like that. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, he talks about political leaders um, in the Roman Empire at the time that was occupying Judea. And then he also talks about some of the religious leaders at the time. So Luke isn't, isn't kind of telling a fairy tale. He's saying, you could talk to these people and say like, is what I'm about to say, did it, did it really happen? And he does that throughout the whole rest of the letter. He mentions names of real people. And if you just think about it, some of the, the outrageous things that we see in the Bible and the New Testament and the Gospel of Luke, if they didn't happen, we have people that weren't Christians listed in the letter that could have just kind of pointed out and said, hey, Luke cited me here. I didn't, that didn't happen. That miracle didn't happen. And, and if that would have been the case, they could have shut this letter down, but it, it survived uh, the test of history because, because it must have really happened. So this is accurate history. And what Luke's pointing us to is, is it's a real time of, of political unrest, much like we're in today. So the Roman Empire was occupying uh, Judea and Jerusalem and the Jewish people. There were tons of divisions happening around political parties and all kinds of things like that. There were revolts and riots. There were different hero figures that people would kind of look to, to to change things for them. A mixture of hope and, and skepticism. And so it'd be like if somebody was, was writing a, a letter and an account of our day and would say, you know, in the year when Donald Trump was in his second year of presidency, um, the, the controversy between Dr. Ford and, and Dr. Kavanaugh happened that year. This guy named Scott Walker was governor of Wisconsin. Jesse Anselman was reading worship for, for Dr. Church, you know, talking about these. So Jesse's not as controversial as some of the other people I just mentioned. Now, why did I just say those people's names? It's not because I'm gonna now say that quick, say, here's what the Bible says about how we should think about those individual figures. What I wanted to point out was just these names that Luke lists, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Ananias, the, the blood pressure of the people listening to this would have raised just like it did when I said Donald Trump and, and Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford. Because it was, it was real and it was hectic and it was confusing at the time of, of how is a change gonna happen? And interestingly, what happens? It says the word of God came. Did you see that in, in verse two? The word of God came. So, so amidst the, the confusion politically, amidst the, the turmoil then and right now here in this moment, we have a clear and authoritative word from God coming in to tell us what we should do. What is God's plan to, ch to change the world? And interestingly, it's been 460 years since the Old Testament of the Bible had ceased to, to be written with the prophet Malachi. And so it had been 400, oh, sorry, I got something in my throat. 460 years since Malachi was written 
And now God is speaking again, pointing out that world history and spiritual history are one thing. It's not like there's world history with Caesar and all these real people, and then the people in the church kind of get together and talk about, here's what was happening kind of spiritually. They're actually one in the same. God is breaking in to do something, and we better pay attention. Could somebody bring me up some water? (laughs) Sorry. So I'm just going to kind of keep going, and then I'll get some water. Now, Okay, so back with me here. Look back at verse two. In the midst of all this, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Cephas, and the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went around into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so we have this guy named John, who is the son of Zechariah. He's the one that, that the word of God comes through. Thank you. Okay, hopefully I don't kick that over. Okay, it was like a little like speckle of something. I don't quite know, it was just like right, right there. I think it got washed down. All right, we're, we're back together. So craziness is happening, right? What is going on? Political leaders, religious leaders, the word of God comes. Who does it come to? This man named John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And the thing you gotta know about John is he's a little crazy. He's this very interesting figure in the history of our world. John, he's, he's a man, we learn from other gospel accounts that he's a man who is out in the woods yelling, covered in animal skins, eating bugs. So if you were just to see John, that's what you would have seen. He's kind of this crazy figure yelling about something in the woods, wearing animal skins, eating bugs. The other thing that we learn about John is he's a prophet. He's someone that God has spoken to and has said, I have a message for my people through you. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we see that John was miraculously born to elderly parents that shouldn't have been able to have any more children. His birth is announced by an angel, and he's told he's going to be a spokesman for God. And just to pause here, have you guys ever had that moment uh, with a friend or a coworker or somebody, and you're starting to kind of explain something about what we believe as Christians, and then after you say it, you're like, that sounds a little strange. That's kind of, you know what, I believe this, but now that I'm saying it out loud, That's a little weird. This is a little weird, right? Announced by an angel, born to parents who couldn't have children. And and what we need to know, guys, is Christianity is real and historical, like Luke's been pointing out, but it's actually kind of strange. Some of the things that we believe, guys, are pretty weird. But John, this strange man, he attracted a huge following throughout it all. It says crowds were following him. Because, guys, strange doesn't equal false. Strange doesn't necessarily equal false. And it's actually the strangeness of Christianity that, that is needed in our time, and it attracts people because it's true. It's this strange story, this strange truth of Christianity that, that John is starting to proclaim that attracts the following, and it works the same way for us today. So we should speak up about it. Now, what's John's mission? Look back at, at verse 3. It says, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what's God's plan? As God looks at everything that's happening, what is God going to do? God cuts through it all, and he doesn't give a specific um, political policy or anything like that, although that's important and an implication of, of the gospel. God cuts through it all and says, John, what I want you to do is proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? Let's keep reading. Luke interprets it, starting in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. 
Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke interprets John's ministry of proclaiming baptism and repentance of sins by going to the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah would have written this 800 years before this happened. And in Isaiah chapter 40, what Isaiah is doing is he's looking into the future saying, there's gonna come a day where God is gonna send somebody into the fray of real, messy, blood pressure rising life. And he's gonna clear out a path in the wilderness so people can see the salvation of God. He says, I'm gonna send a messenger. He's gonna be yelling out in the wilderness. He's gonna be kind of strange, kind of weird, but what he's gonna be doing, his job in this ministry of of, uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins and baptism is to clear out a path in the wilderness. So picture wilderness with me for a second, Middle Eastern wilderness. What does it say? It says, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. So it's this picture of like a, a dark, um, woods, wilderness, that, that you, can't, you can't see the light through it, but there's going to be something that's happened where a path is going to be cleared, okay? A path is going to be cleared, so what? So people can see the salvation of God. That's John's job, is to prepare a path so people can see what God's going to do. Prepare a path so that people can actually see it. So let's touch on just repentance for a second, because that's a word we've used a, a couple times, and it's going to be important in this this text of scripture. John's job is to prepare a way of the Lord by repentance. So just big picture, we'll, we'll deepen our understanding of this, but repentance is basically realigning ourselves with the ways of God. Okay? What repentance is, is, is a human being saying, there's parts of me that are crooked, there's, there's valleys that are too high, and parts of me that are too low. I'm, my life is, is out of step with the way that God has designed me to be. Our world is out of step and I need to realign myself with the ways of God. That's what repentance is. So when you go downtown and you see the, the Capitol building and it's, it's the place where, where protests happen, right? And people are trying to attract a following. What is it that they're doing? What's, what's happening in, in, a, in a protest? It's, it's basically a person who has looked out at the world, looked out at maybe a, a certain political policy or a social issue and said, that's not right. That is, that is out of step with kind of my view of how things should be, and I'm going to propose a new solution. I'm going to say, here's how we can align ourselves back with the way things should be. It's in a way kind of a call of repentance towards, you know, their, their views on it. And you can imagine that that's a little bit about what John's doing. He's out in the woods, kind of in the outskirts of the city. He's out there in the woods saying like, hey, we need to repent. There is a God, and we're living crooked and out of step with him. And he's kind of holding this, this demonstration symbolized by baptism, telling people they need to realign themselves with the ways of God. And in doing this, he's preparing the way for people to ultimately see God's salvation. So let's look and see exactly what it is that John says and does as he does this ministry of repentance and baptism. Starting in verse seven. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Okay. Before I explain that, if you look down at verse 18, it summarizes everything John does, and it says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So Luke, is, Luke says all this stuff about what John said, and then he summarizes and says, okay, so he kind of continued to preach good news, like the stuff I just told you that he said. Does that sound like good news to you guys? Here's four points of, of John's message. Point number one, you are the spawn of Satan. Do you wonder what brood of vipers means? Brood is like a, you know, like a, a clan or a, I don't know, maybe that's like the word, you know, you're like, how do you, what do you call a pack of geese or whatever? It's a brood of vipers, I guess, is, is the correct terminology when you're talking about snakes. The Jews of that day would remember Genesis chapter 3 when Satan used a snake to deceive all of humanity and lead them into sin, okay? So a brood of vipers is a way of saying, you are following the devil. You are the spawn of Satan. Not the best thing to start off in your message for the big crowd that you're trying to get to repent. The second point, he says, God's wrath is coming. God's wrath. God, God is good. God is loving. God is perfect. And he looks at this world and sees the evil and the corruption that there is. And, and his wrath, his judgment is coming for that evil. God wouldn't be good if he didn't judge evil. A judge in our government isn't good unless he calls what is wrong, wrong, and gives a proper punishment for what is wrong. And in the same way, John says the wrath of God is coming for the evil of this world. And the bad news is the evil is in us. It's in our hearts. We're following Satan. Point number three, he says you need to repent for real. For real. He says you need to actually bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So there must have been kind of a, a false or fake repentance, a, a not real change that was happening for these people. And then point number four, he says, if not, you'll get chopped down like a tree and thrown into the fire. Chopped down like a tree and thrown into the fire. It's a, it's a word about the judgment that's going to come. So why so harsh? Why is this John's message? Well, he tells it to us in the way that he's, he's talking to him. He says, verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So the fruit of their life isn't consistent with the way of God. Many of these people were actually religious leaders at the time, as we know, because he says, don't say, you know, we're of Abraham's descendants. Abraham was, was this ancient Jewish guy that they, was the father of the Jewish faith. And they were basically relying on their ethnicity, their religious pedigree, rather than the actual fruit of their lives to say, this is why I'm right with God. The reason that I am living in a way that is consistent with the ways of God is because I was born a Jew. I was born a part of this religious order. The fruit of their life was not consistent with the way of God, and they needed to repent for real. This is like us saying, I'm a, I'm a Christian because I'm an American or because my, my parents were. He says, God could turn that rock over there into, into a Christian you need to repent. And why is John being so harsh? How is this somehow good news? John is saying hard things because they need to hear it. Okay, this is, this is part of this clearing the way that he was sent to do. So he says in verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And how do they respond? Look down at verses, verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So they hear him. They stand there in the crowds. They hear John telling them they need to bear real fruit. And they, they must have internalized it and realized that he was right. So they ask him, okay, 
what do we do? Verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Okay, so here's John's application, right? He tells them they need to repent. They ask him, well, what would that look like for my life? And what he does is he gives three different applications. Notice all targeted at like specific ways that the people were being unjust towards other people. So he targets their injustice. And just to back up for a second, these people needed to repent because they were outwardly religious. They were ethnically Jewish, but their lives were, were lives of injustice towards the people around them. They were sinning against their neighbor. For the crowds, which would have been composed of a lot of religious Jews, verse 12, he, he gets at them for their, their stinginess. Don't hold on to your coat. Don't hold on to your food. Align yourself with the way of God and be generous, okay? In verse 13, for the tax collector, he talks about his greed. Align yourself with the way of God and, and show integrity. Don't collect more than you're authorized to do. He gets at the greed, Verse 14, for the soldier, when the soldier asks, he gets at stealing, extortion is the word. And he says, align yourself with the way of God and do honest work, don't steal. And and many of you guys, and many of, you know, myself, I've never extorted somebody in in that sense, but but at its essence, stealing, it's it's taking something from somebody that, that isn't yours. And so wouldn't maybe lust qualify there? One of the ways that we're, we're out of step with God's design sexually is that we, we look at other people and treat them as objects and we take what isn't ours from them with our eyes, with our minds, or, or even through physical acts. And as I read these things that John is doing, as he's targeting this injustice and saying, this is what repentance would look like, you're out of alignment, line back up with God, I think about like the chiropractor. Do you ever go have like your, this is nothing against chiropractors. This is just the, this is the nature of what they're dealing with is you go into their office and they'll do like a scan of all your vertebrae. And it's like all the colors show just all the different ways that you're out of alignment, right? And you go in there and you're just like, man, I, I knew something was wrong, but now that you're like dipping deep beneath the surface and x-raying me, I can see that I am just way out of alignment. So they crack you and they do all this stuff and you get in, in better shape. But then what happens? You got to come back, right? And when you come back, they <laughs> scan you again. And you're like, you are all out of alignment. I got to crack you and put you back. And so we drift. We drift. Our spine keeps drifting for some reason to be out of place. And I know this is true for me. I don't know about you guys, but my heart, it drifts towards stinginess, not generosity. It drifts towards greed, not integrity. It drifts towards stealing, not honesty and integrity. My heart just drifts. And this isn't an all-encompassing picture of sin. This is just those specific people that were there asking John what they should do. But the big picture here is, is it's pointing to us like this deep problem in our hearts, this deep problem that we're misaligned. We're misaligned with the ways of God. So maybe for you, it's what you do with your money, your sexuality, your words. Maybe it's the way that you approach religion. And Luke's actually gonna show us a lot of these things throughout the rest of this book. So we won't get into it now. Um, buckle up for that. But we need to have a deeper understanding of repentance if we're going to know what to even do about this, right? 
because we were just all out of whack, all out of alignment. So let's talk repentance for a second. We defined it a little while ago as being out of step, misaligned with the ways of God, needing to become realigned. And it's not all that uncommon in our world right now to, to have this sense of, I need to make progress, right? I need to change something about my life. It's, it's not weird to say, of course I'm not perfect. Like I, I need to um, progress and, and keep improving. Everybody's got room for improvement. That's not only like a, a Christian idea, right? So whether it's we need to get healthier, we need to get smarter, we need to become more tolerant, more talented, whatever it is, there's kind of this element of like, oh yeah, repentance. Yeah, we all, we all need to change, right? But I just want to point out to you guys that there is, there is repentance as John's talking about it, and then there's something else, and I'm just going to call it enhancement. Okay, there's this thing called enhancement. What enhancement is, is we know we need to be better, so we look out into the world for things that will enhance our lives and give us a boost, okay? So, for example, I've been realizing that I'm growing increasingly unflexible in my old age here. Things are cracking, and I'm waking up. Like, I woke up this morning, and it was like this half of my shoulder just hurt, and I'm just like, what is going on? You know, I need to learn how to take, like, deeper breaths and all these things. So, so yoga, right? Yoga, I've done lots of different yoga. I've done yoga in all sorts of places and all sorts of uh, ways of yoga. I've done hot yoga. I've done yoga on a vacation. I've done yoga before work. I've, I've done it all, so I'm not, not against yoga. I've in incorporated it into my life in some ways, right? But yoga is just an enhancement, okay? Yoga doesn't change my life. It kind of keeps me going in, in the right, the direction that I was already going, and it's just like I kind of added on to my life. And the problem is when we start to treat Christianity like this too, and we confuse it with repentance. So we want Christianity, we want Jesus to be something that'll give us a boost, get this, in the already established direction of our life. So we've already basically got the plan. We already basically have a direction that we're going, and we say, I, yeah, I need a little boost. I need a little help in that area of my life. And so, so I'm going to repent. I'm going to look at some of these teachings of the Bible, and I'm going to sprinkle those on in my life to, to kind of give me a boost. That's, that's enhancement. That's not what John's talking about here with repentance. And this is what the Pharisees had such a big problem with. The Pharisees, which would have been in this crowd, they were the religious leaders of the time. They already had the plan. They had the whole Bible memorized. They were the ones running the show religiously in uh, Israel at the time. They had their view of the world. Jesus comes in, and as they approach Jesus, they're looking at him saying, does this guy fit in with where we're going? Does this guy fit in with, with our agenda? Are the things that he's doing and the things that he's saying going to kind of give us a, a boost and as soon as they realize that, no, he's saying something entirely different. This guy is saying some things that are actually kind of threatening our power. They're threatening the way that we view the world. They're threatening the way that we even thought God was. And as soon as they noticed that about Jesus, they started to plot to kill him. They disregarded him. He wasn't a good enhancement for their current plan. And they wouldn't repent. Repentance, guys, is a total renovation of the heart. Repentance isn't adding something onto your life to keep you going in the direction. Repentance is seeing God, seeing his ways, and you become realigned with him. He doesn't align with you. It's actually, so the verses that Isaiah was, was quoted in give us a, a picture of repentance. Again, let's go back to this wilderness idea. Verse five, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. 
and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. So this wilderness, this kind of gnarly, dark place. Enhancement would be to look at those trees and then just kind of put ornaments on them and call it good. Repentance is what Isaiah talks about here, clearing out the path, uprooting the gnarly and dark things, and actually planting new trees there so that new life can go. And then John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is a total renovation of the heart. It's about being a new tree, not putting ornaments or even stapling fruit onto our current tree. It's about growing something new. So after John says all this, what happens? Let's look at verse 15 through 17 because it actually works. Verse 15, after John says all this stuff to them, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Mission accomplished, right? Did you look at verse 15? It said that they were in expectations. They were leaning in. John says these really hard things to them. He calls them the spawn of Satan. He tells them they're greedy. He tells them they're stingy. And they lean in and they say, okay, all right, I get it. Are you the one? Are you the one that's going to save us? And he says, nope, I'm not the one, but I'm here to point to the one. It, it's not me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. He's so much greater than me. And, and not only that, not only is he greater, but he says this thing about the Holy Spirit and fire, and it's not going to be like the water thing that I'm doing. And we don't have time to get into all the significance of that, but just know that the Holy Spirit, God, the third member of the Trinity, and fire are qualitatively different than water. They're just different. And John's like, I can baptize people in water as a symbol of what God wants to do. This guy that's coming, he's going to actually be able to change you. And by the way, verse 17, he's the one that we're all going to be accountable for in our repentance. So he's a, he's a big deal. I'm not him. I'm here to point to him. So the people go from looking at John to looking to, okay, what's going to come next? Verse 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by, uh, by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. And then he locked him up in prison. He locked John in prison. So John preaches the good news, gets thrown in prison, and then he exits the stage. And we're done here with John. He's about to hand the baton over to Jesus. And guys, this is good news. All of that John said is good news because if you're walking off a cliff, if you and a herd of other people are walking off a cliff and someone shouts off, you're walking off a cliff. You are about to go off of a cliff. That is good news that he just told you you were walking off a cliff. But not everybody is gonna see that as good news. Not everybody is gonna like being warned. And Herod here is an example of somebody who didn't like it. John tells him, he reproves him for his evil practices, it says specifically there were some very deviant uh, sexual things that he was doing that we would put him on like the um, sex offender list for today. John reproves him of it. Herod won't repent. And there's always going to be people that, that won't repent, that don't like that good news of, hey, you're walking off of a cliff. And Herod is an example 
for that, but for everyone else, that here's the warning. Here's the warning as good news from a loving God that sees the evil that's happening in the world and says, I want to show you my salvation. For everyone else, the path has been cleared. And that brings us to the final scene for this morning. Verses 21 and 22, the baptism of Jesus. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay. Remember what Isaiah said. Remember what Luke was, was quoting him as saying, clear the path so that everyone can see the salvation of the Lord. What's happening in the scene? Just notice the progression, okay? First, in verse 21, everyone gets baptized. John has prepared the way. Then interestingly, Jesus himself gets baptized. And it's like Luke is turning the camera for us right on Jesus. He's taking center stage. After Jesus is baptized, he's praying and it says, heaven is opened. Okay, in human history, anytime that heaven is opened, that is a big deal moment in human history, right? We need to pay attention to whatever is happening. If heaven is opened, we need to say, okay, what is God doing? God is breaking in here. Verse 22, the Holy Spirit descends. That's this reality that he is anointing and empowering Jesus for some accomplishment, some mission. And then what? God speaks. This public affirmation, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. All the big guns are coming out. We got the Father, we got the Holy Spirit. Jesus is there. We're here watching it. What's going on? This is an inauguration. You guys know what an inauguration is? An inauguration is the announcement of something new. Usually we see that happening in, in government or, or politics of like, here is the new leader. He is going to lead the way and change things. So what is God's plan for changing the world? What is God's plan for, for renewing the brokenness and the evil that we see all around us? Well, we see in this inauguration that his plan is Jesus. He's going to start over with Jesus. That's God's plan. Jesus himself thinking about Isaiah's words, is the salvation of God. Clear a path in the wilderness so that all flesh, all people can see how God is going to save us. You guys know Jesus' name in Hebrew means, it's, it's Yeshua. Have any of you guys ever heard that before? Yeshua is how they would have actually said his name. It literally means Yahweh saves. God saves. Jesus' name means the salvation of God. Jesus is the plan. And the plan is that through Jesus, all things are going to be made new. Let me point out to you guys a couple things that Luke is cluing us into here that are going to be made new. The first thing is there's going to be a new Israel. A new Israel. Did you notice uh, where this baptism was taking place? What location it was, where John was doing the baptisms? It's a place called the Jordan River. Okay, the Jordan River was a really significant place in the history of of Israel. It's the river that they crossed over to go into the promised land after they had been set free from slavery in Egypt. And so the Jordan River is this place of already in their history, new beginnings, new hope. We're going into the promised land. But the history of Israel after that was a history of failure and disobedience. If you don't know much about the Bible, shorthand is that Israel was God's chosen people. 
He chose them starting with Abraham and then the whole story of the Old Testament is how they repeatedly failed to live up to the promises of God. They failed to obey him, but they would still look back at the Jordan River and say, that was when we had hope. That was when God said he was doing something new. And so for Jesus to be getting baptized here in the Jordan River in this inauguration moment is communicating that there's a a new Israel happening here. There is a new God's chosen people and it's starting with Jesus. Let's get a little bit bigger. The second is that there's a new humanity. Okay, so not just a new Israel, but a new humanity, like way, way bigger than that. Verse 22, when, when God the Father says, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased, that should remind us of another time where God had said that in the Bible. He said it way back at the creation of, of Adam and Eve. You guys remember that? God's creating and he says, everything is good. He looks down at his creation of Adam and Eve and he, he says, I love you and this is good. I am pleased with you. At the creation of humanity, everything was in a good state, but then sin entered the world. Humanity, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And so the storyline of the Bible up until this point, and it continues to this day from God is, is I love you, but I'm not pleased. I love you, but I'm, I'm not pleased. If any of you guys are parents, it's that feeling of like, of course you love your child, but they have the ability to, to disobey you and, you, and and you can say, I'm not pleased with what you're doing, but of course I still love you. And that's the, that's the whole tension of the Old Testament of the Bible and the whole tension that Jesus is stepping into here in this moment is that humanity is loved by God, created by God, but living in disobedience to God, and therefore he's not pleased with them. But at the baptism of Jesus, God again says, this is my beloved son. And with him, I am well pleased. He's, he's signaling a new creation. All of humanity's sin and corruption is getting a new beginning in Jesus. He's like a new Adam. The last one now zooming out even bigger, a new Israel, a new humanity, but finally a new creation. Do you notice the weird little detail about the, the Holy Spirit hovering down in, in bodily form like a dove? That is a, a direct echo and should remind us of what the Holy Spirit was doing in Genesis chapter one, verse two. It says he was hovering over the face of the waters at the creation of, of all things. In the Genesis account, we see that there was chaos, there was darkness, and then God said, let there be light, let there be form, and he made something out of nothing. He made a new and perfect and beautiful creation, and the Holy Spirit was there hovering just like he is here over Jesus. He does it again after the flood in Noah's Ark, signaling a new creation. So here at the baptism of Jesus, we have not just a new Israel, not just a, a new humanity, but we're saying with Jesus, somehow he's ushering in a new creation, everything. The cosmic fracture that occurred when sin entered the world is now gonna somehow be prepared. He's gonna make all things new through himself. And the question we need to ask is, why is Jesus gonna be able to do this? You know, how do we know that he's not all talk? How is, how is he gonna usher in this new order? How is it gonna happen through him? Here's the answer, because he gets in the water. He gets in the waters of baptism. We can trust that Jesus is gonna make all things new because he, he got in the water. What is, what is baptism about, guys? It's about Jesus identifying with us and then us 
identifying with Jesus. It's one of the weirdest parts of the whole story is wondering, why did Jesus get baptized? Remember the really hard part of the sermon when we were talking about how messed up we all are? Like, those are the people that needed to get baptized, not Jesus. The people that needed to be baptized were the crooked ones and, and the ones that were sinning against God, and they needed to get in the water as a symbol of their repentance. But then Jesus himself, he comes and he gets in the water. Why? Because he's identifying with these people. He's not getting in the water for his own sins and for his own need of repentance. He's doing it for ours. And so did you get a little nervous at all when we were talking about repentance so much and, and sin earlier and, and even like the chiropractor thing of like, well, yeah, but my, it just keeps getting out of alignment. So do I have to go to the chiropractor for the rest of my life? Because the whole story of the Old Testament is dealing with this tension that we can't realign ourselves with God. We can't do it. No matter how loudly John yells at us to repent and how sincerely we want to do it, we just, we can't. We continually sin. Think about the wilderness and darkness in your heart and trying to clear that thing out. It is hard to do and it doesn't work. And it's all, listen to me, it's all meant to lead you. John is trying to lead you to see the salvation of God. He's trying to lead you to the point where you try to clear out the wilderness and the darkness in your heart and you say, I can't do it. Jesus, save me. I can't do it. That is the point. And so Jesus gets in the water for you and says, okay, I'll do it for you. He's pointing ahead to the cross and to the empty tomb. In the baptism of Jesus, he goes underneath the water, signaling that there's gonna be a death, I'm gonna die for you. He rises out of the water, signaling that I'm gonna rise to new life for you. Pointing forward to the actual events of the cross, Jesus, he's crucified for the sins of the world, for the crooked, dark places in our hearts. Then he rises from the grave victorious. And now for all of us that are Christians, there was a moment in your life where you realized the darkness and the sin that was in you. Your heart was prepared. You saw the salvation of God. You saw that God was doing something for you at the cross and you look back from your baptism to the cross of Jesus and you remember that moment. So we have Jesus's baptism, the empty tomb and the cross, and then we have your baptism forming this link in the chain. And the reality we're talking about here, guys, is what it means to be in Christ. In Christ. That's what we are as Christians. We're in Christ. Let me just give you guys a couple encouragements of, of how great it is that we're in Christ. The first one is this. God is already pleased with you if you are in Christ. God is already pleased with you if you are in Christ. We know that because in verse 22, he tells him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He gets in the water identifying with you. If you find yourself in him, God is pleased with you as well. God is pleased with you. And you say, no, there's no way. God, like the things that I have done, the things that I think I'm probably going to do, how could God be pleased with me? Because Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. You're found in him. That's what your baptism was symbolizing. Right now, if you're a Christian in this moment, God is pleased with you. He's smiling at you. His love is moving toward you. And the second thing, the Holy Spirit is at work to change you. If you're in Christ, he's made you into this new tree that can actually bear good fruit. Okay, so John's call to repent is still for the Christians. We still need to realign ourselves with the ways of God, but now because we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is giving us the power to actually do it. The same way the Holy Spirit came on Jesus in his baptism, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit 
is empowering you to actually change. You can bear the fruit that John was yelling about because you are a new tree. And until you become a new tree, you won't be able to bear that fruit. So in conclusion, God's plan to renew the world is what? It's Jesus. He's making all things new in him. So when John clears the way and we see the baptism of Jesus, this is, we see God, I'm going to quote Paul in Ephesians 1, we see God making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Listen, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's plan. See Jesus, be united to him, be a part of God uniting all things. God has broken into our world with good news for all people. We join him by repenting of our sins and believing in Christ. Is the way been cleared in your heart to do that? Three closing questions from Dr. Luke, okay? Three closing questions just for us to reflect on as we enter into a time of singing and worship. The first one I think that Luke would, would be trying to get at from this passage is, do you see your sin? Do you see it? When he was yelling at us, did it help you see it? Do you see the crooked and rough places of your heart and the way they don't align with God? That's the first step. You have to see your sin. But after seeing your sin, you don't go to, to some kind of an enhancement to try to cover it up, but you go to the Savior. Do you see him? Do you see Jesus in his baptism pointing forward to his cross and his resurrection? Do you see him doing that for you? Do you see him rising out of the grave for you? Do you see your sin? Do you see your Savior? And then lastly, will you repent? Will you turn to him? Will you believe in him? Will you trust him? Will you let God tear down the wilderness that's in your heart and plant something new so you can be a part of him making all things new? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have, you have taken us to, the, to some deep, dark places in our hearts, and then you've lifted us up into the heavens to see Jesus dying for us, rising for us. And I pray that our church, as we're getting started, would be marked by repentance, seeing our sin, seeing our Savior, turning to follow him. God, I pray for the hearts in this room and all the things that we're walking through as a church and as individuals, that you would make those places straight where they're crooked. God, you would lower every valley. God, and as we sing to you now, that we would just enjoy your pleasure on us. God, that we would believe in our hearts that we are your beloved children, and with us, you are well pleased. Amen. Amen.